Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1000 Hours Outside. And truly, I can't believe it. Randall Wallace directed Braveheart and wrote, wrote Braveheart, wrote the whole screenplay and the man in the iron mask and Pearl Harbor and seven novels. Randall Wallace, welcome. Oh, thank you, Jenny. It's great to be here with you. What an accomplished life you have lived. It is absolutely incredible. You know, I sometimes I sit back and I think, like most of us, we work a nine to five and then we watch some Netflix and we go to bed. And you have this life where you have accomplished so many things. You have just woven so many stories together. You've written a hymn. You have a black belt in karate. (laughs) This is a really, really broad question. But what are your first thoughts? If someone said, like, how does one person become so accomplished? First of all, I... I don't really think of myself as being accomplished. I mean, when you say those things, I'm aware that it's varied and maybe more varied than most people do. But I, gosh, I don't know how to say this exactly. There's sort of a paradox with me. I've I've got confidence. I had a moment when I left school to go audition for a job in Nashville as a performer. And I was lying in a motel room alone the night before the audition. I'd driven all the way from Durham, North Carolina to Nashville. And and I'm lying there in the darkness. And I um, found myself praying. And and I asked God to not let me have my fears get in the way. That maybe maybe my dream of, of having a career in entertainment, of writing music, of doing things that I love to do, Maybe that's ego, maybe it's pride, maybe it's a lot of things, maybe I don't have the talent, but I promised God two things would never stop me, a lack of effort or a fear of failure. Mm. So I look at it for me as a process and that everything that I've gotten to do is a gift and I'm not finished and I never know what's around the corner, but I do believe God's plan is better than my plan. So that's how it's worked out for me. Wow. So many things that have touched so many people. And you have now this generational thing, which I thought was really interesting, a part of your story. So you say your father was a storyteller, a natural storyteller. Now his father had died. So this would be your grandfather, right? Yes. So your father didn't grow up with a father around. He died. Actually, it's one of the, I think, most scary like as a pregnant like if you're a pregnant mother and your husband dies and not even there for the birth and the rearing of the child and yet your father he grew up without a father around was such a good dad and he was this natural storyteller and now here you have woven together all of these incredible epic stories and now your sons are involved yeah they're involved with your wallace entertainment so it's this legacy of story what were some of the stories? I mean, you say your father was a natural storyteller. What were some of the stories that he told? Well, one of my favorites, and it's something that I discovered, is that we transfer our identity and our values through our stories. The stories that my father told me, told me who he is and who my grandfathers were and in people that I never got to meet, but with a single story, I would know something. So one of my favorites, I actually tell this story in this live show that I'm doing. My father, 
his dad, of course, died of typhoid fever before he was born. So when he met my mother, my mother's father became like a father to my dad. And um, I asked my father to tell me about that grandfather because he was also, he passed away before I was born. And the story was that my grandfather during the depression went to work at a, a place where they froze huge blocks of ice mm -hmm. and men would sling those blocks of ice onto wagons because in Tennessee farms didn't have electricity. So if you wanted to keep your milk and your meat cold, you had to have ice and these blocks weighed hundred, a uh, hundred pounds, 50 pounds. They would sling these men. My grandfather's a big, strong man and he was Baptist deacon. So he was a very proper man as well, but he went to work on the, um, on the crew. And the first day the foreman came up to him and said, listen, I just want to let you know that I cuss at the men to get them to work. So if I forget myself and I call you a, an SOB, don't pay me no money. He didn't say SOB. Mm -hmm. Don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. That's just the way I am. And my grandfather said, I understand completely. And if you do forget yourself and you do happen to call me that, and I hit you in the face with a claw hammer, don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. It's just the way I am. Now, that told me everything I need to know. Now, the kicker to this is that my dad, having grown up without a dad, and then, then he had my mother's father, and then my mother's father passed away. And my father came out for the last three days of filming of We Were Soldiers, a mm -hmm. Vietnam War movie that I did. And he walked around the set and he was a salesman for much of his life. He is retired now and he just loved people. And he walked around the set, talked with everybody for three days, never sat down. And he went back home and he had a heart attack. And um, I got the phone call from the doctors asking for permission from my sister and me to turn off the machines that were keeping him alive. And of course, that's, that's a very difficult call. And we made the decision and I went and got on an airplane, was flying back to be at his bedside when the pilot announced that all the air traffic in the country had to land because it was 9-11. And I didn't make it to my father's bedside. After his funeral, I was back in Los Angeles and working on We Were Soldiers. And one of the Vietnamese guys who had worked on the film came up to me and said, I'm so sorry about your father. And I said, well, thank you. Let's get back to work because I was emotionally raw and I didn't want to break down and weep. Yeah. He said, I'm so sorry. And I said, well, let's get back to it. He said, no, please listen. He said, I met your father on the set and your father talked to me. And your father said, where is your father? And I said, my father died in Vietnam. And your father said to me, then I'll be your father. Wow. What a man. Yeah. What a man. You said that he would take you to the graveyard sometimes. Yes. The country graveyard. Yeah. And there was this quote that said, he would stand at the grave of his father in silence. So this is a man that he never knew. Yeah. He would go stand in silence. And you say, there was a lot said in those silences. Yes. Yeah. What's said in the silence? I felt, well... What an incredible question. Um, that's I've never been asked that. What a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, he, he was 
showing a reverence for one thing. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that we've lost is um, a sense of the sacred, a sense of what needs to be kept holy and mysterious and what needs to be pondered. And he was he was pondering who his father was and how he could be a better father. And probably, probably, I think, as I get older myself and I have sons, he was probably thinking, am I preparing my children for when I'm not here? And I think it also, I think that moment created in me a kind of mysterious reverence for who my ancestors had been. And in its own way, it, I'm sure that led me to Braveheart. And what an interesting thing that even though your grandfather wasn't a part of your life yes. and wasn't a part of your dad's life, that this thread of storytelling, he was a part of it. Yes. He was a part of this thread of storytelling. And you say you became an avid storyteller as a young child, yeah. first, second grade. Oh, yeah. What kind of stories did you like? You talked about your family, like aunts and uncles. What kind of stories did you like to tell? Well, so um, I realized it was in the second grade. There was I was living in Memphis, and um, there was a citywide poetry contest. And the teacher announced that there was this poetry contest. I was seven years old. And I thought that was exciting because... When the teacher would say to the class, I want you to write a story or write a poem, everybody else would groan. And I was like, oh, great. This is better than recess. And um, I wrote a poem and I turned it in. And I thought, that's a pretty good poem. And I never heard anything. And a couple of weeks later, I said to my teacher, what happened with that citywide poetry contest? And she said, I didn't send yours in because you copied it out of a book. And I said, no, I didn't. She said, yeah, you did. You, you, you copied it out of some book. And I honestly thought I must have written a great poem because she thought <laughs> I stole it. She thought an adult wrote it. And it didn't actually, I didn't care about the prize in the poetry contest. I said to myself, huh, this is pretty good. And I would write songs and poems and sing them for my grandmother and my mother. And when I wrote stories, my grandmother had a country store and I would sit in the back of that country store and write stories. And they were usually adventure stories about brave men fighting bullies, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> which is kind of what I do now. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I haven't changed any. What a story that teacher who did the wrong thing that turned out to be an incredible impact on your confidence because you're seven years old and she thinks it's from an actual book <laughs> what a legitimizer yes that's phenomenal so you have this running through your life since you're a very young child and someone who comes in from the outside you know who's seen braveheart who's seen all these different movies that you've done pearl harbor you don't know the underpinnings. And you also had some really hard things along the path. Like you talk about how you had written a 1600 word, I know it kind of came back around, but a 1600, not word, 1600 page, 1600 pages. Randall, I can't, I can't even, a 1600 page screenplay that you couldn't sell. Yeah. How do you deal with that internally? Um, it's hard. And um, 
I worked on that for about four years. But one, I think, honestly, the the real answer to that question is that I believe that things are never over, that it's a process. And I thought, okay, it took me this long to get to this point. Uh, but it was a novel called Love and Honor. And I, I realized that it was just so long, people didn't want to, it was just, I mean, the pages were like, you know, over a foot high. And I thought, uh, I'll turn it into two novels. I'll trim it down. I'll, and that's what I did. And ultimately boiled it down to a, a screenplay and a novel. The novel's uh, been published by Simon & Schuster. And the, the screenplay I still have and I'm still working on and, and, um, and plotting to make it. Uh, currently, Henry Cavill is attached to um, to play the lead role. We'll see what happens there, but but things are never over. You know, the the Bible says all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. That's one of my favorite phrases. That I may not know how something's working, um, and what I think is is a setback is a, the teacher not turning in my poem. That doesn't have to be a curse. It might be a blessing that I don't understand how the blessing would work. But some of the greatest things in my life, Jenny, have been things that I thought that I didn't want to happen, you know, that I was praying that they would not happen. And they turned out to be part of the path into something much, much better. Wow, that's really inspiring. And when we're talking about challenges, and like I said, so often, I think, well, I heard someone say one time that reading biographies are so powerful, because a lot of times we enter into someone else's story when they're at their pinnacle. And so we don't know the path. And you talked about, I thought this was actually just wild. You said in every project, every project, I've had a moment when I've had to get down on my knees and pray. If this is the time, Lord, you want me to show my sons what a man does when he gets knocked down, then let me have that failure. Bring it on. But please help me get up. Please give me the strength to show them that if I go down, I'm going down with my flags flying. I'm going down bold in the truth as I see it. So I come in at the pinnacle, right? That Braveheart came out in when I was 15. So I wasn't allowed to see it at that point. Uh, but, you know, I've seen these clips. I mean, they play, they're played at churches a lot. Just, you know, certain parts of them. The, you know, the ah! <laughs> and this is the pinnacle. But you say in every project, a moment comes when failure, it might be imminent. If you could give an example of like a challenge, I mean, I I really can't imagine this role. You're working with the top tier people and you have deadlines and there's expectations. Can you think of an example of a a challenge like that where you were to say, oh, this might, this might fail? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I, I think of a couple. When we were making, we were soldiers that was a, a great experience because Mel and I had done Braveheart and that was, that was really cool, Jenny. I mean, I, he was the biggest star in the world at the point, at that point, And I was completely unknown. Well, how does that happen? You know, when you read about it online, it says this, this is the wording, Randall. It says the screen is, a, it's a screenplay, right? This is what you're writing. The screenplay caught the attention of Mel. And then it's seven or eight words, and that's all you get. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, how does that happen? Well, it's always miraculous. 
you can't replicate it when young people will say, how did you, what's the path? You go, well, what worked for me, it will be entirely, and, and next time will be different too. It's like falling in love. It's like, how does anyone, there's a sameness and there's a uniqueness about each of those things. And with this, I had written the screenplay. I didn't think anyone would like it. I honestly didn't. I believed that I had said that prayer that you read a few minutes ago for the first time. And that's what led me to go back to writing again and writing Braveheart. And I think without that prayer, I would have never written Every Man Dies, Not Every Man Really Lives, or They May Take Our Lives, They'll Never Take Our Freedom. I had to be there on my knees and finding, okay, I'm willing to go down this way before I could express that, that feeling of being lost was part of the journey. I wrote it, and I have a friend named Jack Bernstein, and Jack wrote Ace Ventura the same year I wrote Braveheart. He's one of my best friends in life, and I will read his stuff, and he'll read mine. And having a friend, and it's not necessarily the person who loves you most in life that can give you the best feedback about something. You know, it's like saying, does this shirt look good on me? Or do you like this haircut? Or the people that love you the most want to say, sure, it's great, but you need somebody that can give you an objective eye. And Jack, if he can make me laugh, then he knows he's got a good screenplay. And if I can make him feel something, I know I've got it. But I gave him Braveheart and I thought he was going to tell me, you need to start a new career or you know, mm-hmm. time for you to go to law school. This screenwriting thing isn't working out. And we sat down for breakfast the next morning to talk. And he said, I think that's the best thing you've ever written. And you could have knocked me over. I think that that path is amazing. And the studio was saying, "Who's who could play William Wallace? And the problem was there was only one person in the world that I thought was right. And that was Mel. And we found a way to uh, get the script to, well, my agent and his agent worked in the same building. And my agent went to his agent and said, I know you get hundreds of scripts for Mel. I mean, they come in all, the top actor in the world gets every script that comes through. And so the clutter is a problem. But my agent said, if you don't read this, someone else is going to do it. And then Mel is going to say, why didn't I see it? And you're not going to want to tell him I had it. You need to read this. And he did. And then I got a phone call saying that Mel wanted to have a meeting. And we went on from there. (laughs) Can you tell us about your nerves? I mean, are you the type of person that it was nervous about that meeting or just, you know, you go in and you're confident? Uh, It's both. And I have found over time that nerves are not a bad thing. Um, In fact, I hate fear. And I believe that fear, you know, the the battle we all fight is between fear and faith. But I talked with a one of the, the soldiers who had been incredibly heroic during the, the battle that we were soldiers describes in Vietnam. And I asked him how he could function with so much fear. And he said, fear is your friend. You couldn't survive without it. It keeps you alert, gives you energy. And I've come to see it that way. If I'm going to do, say, a live performance and I'm not, I don't have butterflies, I'm not going to have nearly the energy and the the focus. Mm -hmm. But I also 
it causes me when you've got a you've got time and anticipation. You know, when something happens immediately, you're just reacting. But if you've got time to think about it, a friend of mine was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and he said, the scary parts weren't when suddenly you came under fire. It was when you had to go to bed at night knowing the next morning you were going to come under fire. Those were the, the times of fear. And before I met Mel, I walked around the neighborhood and I said a prayer that that I wouldn't be a butt kisser, you know, that I would go in and and tell him the truth as I saw it. And when we sat down, I looked across the table at him and he was very easy to talk with. I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I'm sitting across from Mel. He opened the conversation. Uh, he said, well, this is William Wallace and you're Randall Wallace. Are you guys related? And I said, I'm certain we are. I can't prove it, but I'm certain we are. But no one else was talking. And there were presidents of the studio and presidents of Mel's company and all these people around the table, and no one was talking. And I turned into kind of a tent revivalist, and I leaned across the table and said, look, every movie has a message, whether it wants to or not. And the message of most movies is the guy with the bluest eyes and the biggest biceps and the most money and the cutest dimples, he gets the girl. This movie says if you're faithful to your heart, even if they cut it out of your chest, you prevail. That's the movie I want my sons to see. You want to make that movie, I'm your man. You don't want to make that movie, you need to say no. And everybody in the table kind of <laughs> sat back except Mel and he leaned in. And I knew, okay, this guy and I are going to have have a partnership of some sort. We're going to relate. And it went on from there. And what a partnership it has turned out to be. What a story that this was your last ditch effort. Yeah. This is the last thing that, you know, or writing is not for me. And so you have this last ditch effort. And it reminds me of that verse that says, in our heart, we plan the course, but the Lord determines the steps. Mm. And now here with Mel, you've done this passion of the Christ. You've had so many other things that have been so impactful story-wise just to all of humanity. And it started in that spot that was the last try. And that's what did it. That was the thing that blossomed into all of these other things. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do but I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops' price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code OUTSIDE120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code OUTSIDE120 at goodchop.com slash OUTSIDE120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash OUTSIDE120, code OUTSIDE120. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported 
And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. Braveheart has just so many messages in it. One of them that I saw that came up a lot was the wisdom is first wisdom and then strength. Yeah. You would say first and it ha- it got brought up several times. It's our wits that make us men first learn to use your mind and then the sword. Would you say that that was one of beyond this, you know, <laughs> ripping the chest heart out of the chest. Was that also a main theme of that one for you? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's one of those things about masculinity that, and I don't mean this just in terms of male, female, but the kind of yin and the yang masculine, female energy that a guy will want to charge off and take action. But you've got to learn if you're a warrior, you've got to learn to use your mind. You don't become a warrior uh, without being able to have a strategy and to see what's going on. I said this once to a, a friend that that um, felt real wound in my life and in divorce, and I just trying to pick up the pieces of my life and and my family. And my friend said, "You know, there's a difference in in the Bible between just a soldier and a warrior. The King David sometimes had to hide. The greatest warrior in the Bible, he had to hide. He had to he had to maneuver. He had to flee." because he knew that not every hill could be taken right now. And the frontal assault is not always the best way to do things. Well, we want to charge off and get into action. And Jenny, it's funny, um, the thing with the passion of the Christ that I've been working on with Mel, I didn't, except for encouraging and being a sounding board somewhat for the passion. I mean, that was Mel and, um, and another writer who worked on it with him. But we're working on the resurrection, the follow-up to the passion. And that's an example of you have to use your spirit. One of the things I say to myself virtually every day is that I want to listen for God, not just talk to God, but actually listen to what, what God is saying. And I don't think there's any greater example of that. And I know there's not in all of human history than the resurrection and the story being so mysterious of Mary Magdalene in all the gospel accounts is the first one to to see Christ resurrected. 
and she doesn't recognize him at first. And this is so incredibly beautiful to me that, you know, she's standing at his grave weeping and someone she thinks is the gardener speaks to her. And when we, when Mel and I started talking about this, we, we were on a, a trip promoting Hacksaw Ridge and we were having dinner, just the two of us. And I said, you know, I'm sure he thought of this before, but he didn't feel like pursuing it. And I said, I have been fascinated with the resurrection my entire life. I will write a screenplay, give it to you. Then you can go to work from there and see where we go. But that's the Mount Everest of all stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. back to your question about fear, it's terrifying. You, you feel so small against something so huge. But one of the things I tell my, my sons, and I couldn't tell them this unless I'd experienced it myself, and needed to hear it. You know, those things you tell yourself over and over are things that you got to keep telling yourself over and over because they're hard to hear. But it's that you don't want your first fight to be the heavyweight championship of the world against the heavyweight champion. You've got to spar the rounds. You've got to have the steps, the disappointments, all of the things that lead you to a, a place where you can do your best. And there'll still be challenges in that moment. It's not a given. They don't just hand you the heavyweight championship. You've got to go win it. But you can't do it unless you've taken all these other steps first. Those steps show you your your trajectory. And you sure had a lot of them. I mean, I had read that you were working in Opryland doing an animal show and moved to Hollywood and you're writing for television. So this is a process, a long process and a process of bravery to move from Tennessee out to Hollywood. I mean, you know, it's you read these sentences and if you really take a step back, you think, well, wait a minute. What was that really like to have this job, you know, this job that's providing and it's there every day. And then you say, look, I'm going to leave. I'm leaving. I'm going to cross the country and I'm going to try something else. And so I love that this bravery is woven through your own story too. And you really can see that, like you see the bits of Braveheart that, and well, you even said, this was like my own soul. My soul is raging. Can I actually do this thing that I really feel called to do? This is the battle that's going on within me. And so we have these listeners that are mainly parents and they are trying to preserve balance in childhood between real life and virtual life. And it's a tricky proposition these days. One of the things that you've said is boys are hardwired to want to be William Wallace, but churches and schools try to turn them into Mr. Rogers. And then you give a caveat. You say, I like Mr. Rogers. We all like Mr. Rogers. (laughs) So there's that. But, you know, what do you think is going on these days with childhood? Well, I think it's been a natural consequence of peace, of good times. Peace is a blessing. There's, it's, it's an incredible blessing. There's no doubt about that. But there's a saying that's been going around lately. Uh, you know, I, I see it you know, here with a lot of my friends of strong people make good times. Good times make weak people. Weak people make bad times. Bad times make strong people. And, you know, we haven't had a war in which Americans have been drafted since uh, Korea, real well, since Vietnam. And that's over a half a century. And 
and we start to think that it's not important to have people who are willing to sacrifice. And we start to think that, like I have said to my own sons, if I had my way, I would remove from your life every heartbreak, every sense of failure, every disappointment. I'd remove all the things that will help make you a man. And we've got we've to take care that I'm not doing that. So, you know, you, you hear the story told, I'm sure, from, from many sort of baby boomers like me that we would play in the dark in the summertime, be, be pitch black. We'd be running around the neighborhood and, you know, finally our mothers would call. You'd hear your mom's voice. And, but we'd go down to the store, you know, on our bicycles, walk to school a mile or two. Nobody thought a thing about it. Now we're terrified to let our children do that. And don't get me wrong. I, I'm the same way. I, you, you hear about predators and you'll do everything you can to protect your children. But feeding them fear is just the wrong thing. And not to tell them to me what I think is going on is you send a message to your children that you think they are weak by telling them that you have to do everything for them, that they can't do it for themselves. They can't have the consequence. You'll like this story. This just happened. I told you, I, I was really, really aware of your work and thinking this is really fascinating. I want to dig into it. My youngest son loves video games and video games are exciting and they're challenging and he can stay connected with friends. They play mm -hmm. together, they're cooperative and all of those things, but they're designed to be seductive. And I had said to him, you have to have a limit, but you have to have, understand this. Your grades must reflect your ability. And in your case, that means straight A's. If you don't get straight A's, you and I are going to have a problem. So we just looked at his grades and he had less than straight A's. And so I said, well, there go your video games. Until the grades come up, your video games are gone. So the next day I said to him, so did you do anything different in school now? Did you study harder? Did he went, no, I didn't do anything different. I went, why not? And he said, well, I figure if I get the same lousy grades with video games or without video games, you'll have to let me have the video games back. <laughs> so, okay. I'm a clever kid. <laughs> I, in this battle of wits, I am out. <laughs> I'm just okay. It's a battle of wits. <laughs> Do you think, okay, so if, and it's hard, it's so hard to put ourselves in a different position. Like I tend to think if I were growing up, I, I mean, I think I would have struggled immensely. Like I already had a hard enough time in the seventh grade, let alone if there's a phone and everyone can videotape what you're doing. And yeah. I was, you know, I was like the chubby kid with the ugly clothes and a big gap in my teeth. And I, I just can't even imagine everything can be filmed. Everyone's got a phone. Do you think that growing up in the generation that you did, do you think that that helped foster your creativity? Yes. Absolutely. I really do. And there were times when my father, my father had a nervous breakdown when I was the same age as my youngest son is now. And my sister and I were farmed out to relatives who were incredibly loving relatives. But at one point we lived in a house with no indoor plumbing. And we went through about six months when we didn't have a single toy. We literally did not have a toy. I didn't have a belt for my pants for a couple of months. Now, I wouldn't trade that time for anything. Mm. 
But I also found that it made my imagination grow because that was where my fun was. And I think that's part of the insidious nature of, say, video games and modern technology and televisions is they do appeal to our curious nature. It's, I, I once heard it said that watching a fire was mesmerizing for human beings because we're trying to make the pattern make sense and it never does. And we're, we're trying to see what if there's a, a repeating system here. But I think letting children have time when they have to figure out the way to relate to the world through imagination, it's necessary to give them room to do that. And I'm afraid our technology doesn't. What's your feeling on that? I mean, you study this more than I. Well, you know, I think my take is that whether it was done on purpose or not, I don't think it was done on purpose. I think that society used to be constructed in a way that saved childhood. And so there were natural boundaries that existed with technology, such as that when I was growing up, the cartoons ended at noon on Saturday. And on Sunday, there was nothing to watch but WWF. And I didn't like WWF. And I remember being annoyed. I remember trying to love WWF because I wanted to watch TV. I wanted to just sit around and watch TV, but there was nothing on. And so society forced you out of that to go find someone to play with, to go figure out what you're going to do. The shows had reruns. I mean, there wasn't constant content. And so that was just, I think, the product of that day and age. And so the tricky part is that those boundaries no longer exist. Screens are ubiquitous and available 24-7 with constant new material. And so then the parent has the tall order of being the gatekeeper in that situation, and it's extremely difficult. Yes. And you know, as you say that, that that trips to one other thing that, that I've experienced and seen everywhere. A lot of concerned men are talking about pornography, and it, it's become... It's available to anybody with a, I guess, with an iPhone, even you use it, and it's just ubiquitous. And children get exposed to it before parents know that it's possible for them to get. You never even imagine your child would know what it was if they ran into it, but they, but their playmates have big brothers and big sisters, and big, and they, they get, and that's one of the most toxic. You know, I. I don't want to sound prudish, and I, I don't think I am, but but what that robs them of when you say we, we're, we're not protecting children. We, the biggest thing I want them to know is that loving someone is critical. And I don't think I said this in my book, Jenny, but um, maybe I did. I did a screening of Braveheart some years ago, and there was a young woman I did a a question and answer afterwards, and a young woman stood up on the front row and said, I don't have a question. I just want to tell you, my fiance died six months ago, and before he died, he told me to watch Braveheart so I would understand the way he loved me. And yeah, it took me a couple minutes before I could speak again, and that's a that story was a big reason I wanted to do this live show that I'm doing because I think what we've lost is the celebration 
of actual love, of treating someone like they're the only one. It's something like I, I teach my sons and, and I, I don't mind being called old fashioned. I don't think it's old fashioned at all, but I teach them to, to say yes, sir. And no ma'am and look people in the eye and open doors for ladies, pull out chairs for ladies. They appreciate that someone is saying you are to be honored. And for me, you are on a pedestal. And I think a man find, doesn't find himself unless he treats women that way. I think that people need to be told the no of life, but the yes of life, that if you do this thing, you will find a yes in your life that's so much more powerful than the then don't do this, don't do this kind of no. Yeah. Well, and you talk about that. You say, I'm not my main driver, because these movies teach lessons, obviously. And there's these themes of heroes and bravery and courage and love. And there's all these themes. So there's lessons that are taught. But you say that's not your primary motivation. Your primary motivation is about how we live. Yes. Yeah. I think you have to give people an experience and that's what entertainment really should be is not, okay. I, I, I was, was told this lesson. It's like, I, I had this experience. Those have been the most powerful movies in my life. When I would come out and think my life is changed forever because of what I just experienced. So that to me is, is what movies and books and songs and, conversations are meant to do mm -hmm. it's experience this episode is brought to you by better help question what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day read a few chapters of that book start painting that guest bedroom tackle that pile of laundry play a card game with your kids a lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time the question is time for what if time was unlimited how would you use it the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash 1000 hours. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. 
From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com slash outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Tell us about this live show because you said this is about, you know, this love and you have this live show. People can find more information about it and blog posts and your books and all sorts of information at Wallace Entertainment. Tell, but tell us about the live show. Well, during the pandemic, I got offended by the way we were separated from each other. I'm not terrified of vaccinations in that when I was a child, we had polio, a polio epidemic. And even within my own family, I saw it's how devastating it could be. I thought, I want to do a live show. I want to bring people together. And I want to have it exist in the moment and not just concocting it, crafting it over years with, okay, here's the movie, and then it's set. But it's experiences like getting to show the movie and be with the audience and have experiences like the young woman who stood up and told me what she told me, which changed my life in many ways. I had that going on in my head, and then I had an experience with a a MRSA, which is a a staph infection that antibiotics have trouble dealing with. And uh, my doctors were going to amputate my hand, and they let me know that. And I went to bed thinking the next morning my hand would be gone. And I I said some prayers. I had some friends praying for me. And uh, the next morning I went into surgery and they they put me under. And when I came out of surgery, I saw my sons and they were smiling. And I looked down and my hand was still there and the infection was gone. And I thought, I'm gonna celebrate having hands. I'm going to rejoice in having hands and I'm going to, I'm going to tell the story of my hand and tell the story of getting down on my knees and saying to God, if this is your choice that I go down, then let me go down, but let me go down fighting for what I believe. And I think that story, my, my hope is experiencing the live telling of that. I use clips from my movies songs that I wrote for the movies and about the the experiences and the stories about how those scenes came about for a live show. And we've done it uh, several times and people are, are really responding powerfully to it. So we're going to go around the country uh, and uh, Amazing. do it live. It's called The Brave Heart of Creativity. Yes. Yeah, beautiful. Live show 2024. People can go to wallaceentertainment.com to find information and make sure that they catch that. And what a thing to be put under and to think you're going to come out one way and to come out another. Can we hit one last topic uh, that I thought was such an interesting one? And you had gone to, uh, you did you know, some work in theology and you had someone who said to you, Dr. Langford, the greatest calling is not necessarily to the ministry. The greatest calling is your calling. Right. If you were to put into words, what do you think your calling is? Oh, wow. Um, I would have said, Jenny, that it was telling people the truth, telling people stories that are the truth as I know it. C.S. Lewis said something like that, that he said, Christian literature isn't written by a committee of bishops. It's it's someone with a faith who's telling the truth as best they can. But 
I think it's also living the truth as best that I can. The older I get, the more I'm aware of how easy it is to talk about the truth and act as if you're wise or pretend that talk as if you're wise, but live out your faith, step into the unknown. That we we always I, I say this in my show that somehow we imagine that before we take a step, we need to know exactly where we want to go and exactly how we plan to get there. But faith and life to be fully alive, you have to step into the mystery. And when you do, there are consequences and sometimes beautiful consequences you never could have imagined. And that's that's what I continue to try to do. And when I look in the mirror and I realize that, that I'm hesitant to do something because I'm afraid or because of my wounds, it's like we all have wounds. Mm-hmm. But what if instead of seeing them as our scars, as symbols of shame or failure, we saw them as the birthmarks of our bravery. That's what I'm trying to do. Wow. Wow. I mean, when you talked about having that meeting with Mel, I kind of feel the same way here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like it's on my calendar. We connected through (laughs) Brian Tome, who's a phenomenal pastor in in Ohio. And, you know, I was like, but really, like, really, is, is Randall Wallace really on my calendar? I mean, what an absolute honor! Your movies and and books and songs have just been so powerful through generations, and this has been an absolute honor. I'm so excited to see what's still to come, the things that you're still working on, and these messages that you have that still spread, which is which is a really interesting thing, like. You know, you make a movie in 1995, but people are, it's its a household movie name. And I don't think that a, a large percentage of movies are household movie names. And, and you have one from 1995 still, people are affected by these messages and all the other things that you've done. I mean, it's a lot, all the artistry, the novels and the stories. You know, I'm so grateful that you were here and we always end our show with the same question. And the question is, what's a favorite memory from your childhood that was outside? Outside. Um, the My favorite memory of childhood outside was that my grandmother, uh, my grandmother was a um, uh, an incredible woman and she didn't have a ton of education. She grew up in, in a lot of poverty, but she was so rich in life and she loved to garden and she would go out into her garden and I would go out with her. She had a deteriorated hip and had a lot of pain and moving and all that, but she would get in the garden and put her hands into the dirt and look at the flowers growing. And it wasn't like she worshiped them. It was that she worshiped life and love that she felt close to God there. And I remember being outside with her and thinking it wasn't complicated. It was just as simple as this. It was maybe, Wendy, maybe it was one of the first chances I had to understand that you needed to be, not just do. You could just be in the presence of God, in the presence of life. That's one of my favorite memories. Was that your grandmother, Paige? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you say that she was the most pivotal person in your life. 
Yeah, yeah. She, um, I had asthma. I had severe asthma when I was a child. And my parents worked so hard. They were just exhausted when we would go out to the country. And so grandmother would let them sleep and they would sleep in. But I had asthma. And if I panicked, I would die. And my grandmother would hold me up all night and sing to me and tell me stories. And uh, so, so she was, she was the one that, that really, um, you know, that I remember. She was the face of God to me. Mm-hmm. How beautiful. And how beautiful to think that we can maybe be that to someone else in simple ways, simple ways. It's not like she was like, I'm going to take you to Disney World or, you know, it's, it's not that. Uh, it's these simple moments of presence that are so impactful. Yes. Randall, thank you. What an absolute beyond honor to have this time with you. I'm so grateful. I have learned so much. I'm so inspired by what you're doing. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. And I'm inspired by your work too. It's really important. Maybe the most important anybody's doing. So thank you. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.